a lot of them have sort of learned how to harness their adversity and use it as a catapult. Um, you know, most people I've interviewed have said that their injury or illness or the tragedy that they've experienced is one of the greatest things that's happened to them in their life. There's this, you know, overwhelming feeling of satisfaction and gratitude that they've made it through their difficult period and they're better humans because of it on the other side. This is Kim Constantinesco, founder and editor-in-chief of PurposeToPlay.com, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. This week I'm interviewing Kim Constantinesco, and she's the founder and editor-in-chief of Purpose to Play, where she and her team strive to share the positive and powerful sports stories that make real impact on real people and real players. Kim previously covered the Denver Broncos and the NFL for seven seasons, and Kim is also an avid snowboarder, and she's on the podcast today to share her tale of a serious neck injury that she suffered from and, and eventually uh, worked her way back onto the mountain uh, while snowboarding, and then also to talk to tell us more about Purpose to Play. So Kim, thanks for coming on the show, and also um, if you guys, if you just want to start off by um, kind of taking us through your your neck injury and and, and snowboarding that, that would, I think that's a good place to start sure well thanks for having me on the show Kevin I really love what you're doing um very similar off, uh yeah very similar missions that we have so yeah absolutely well to start off um talking about my my neck injury um this was back in 2011 uh so six years ago now it feels I don't know it feels uh like a lifetime ago, but uh, right. I was, so I, I live in Denver, Colorado. I was up at Keystone Resort and uh, it was one of those beautiful bluebird days, not a cloud in sight. It had snowed about eight inches the night before. So really just perfect conditions to, to go up and have some fun with some friends, with some friends. So um, days like that, my friends and I, we love to go and hike into the back bowls at Keystone, kind of get away from the crowds, and we'd bring our avalanche shovels to build jumps so we could practice some of the tricks and and have a soft landing. Um, so I went back there uh, for about an hour in the morning with my, my two friends, and we were working, um, you know, on building the jump, and we just got it perfect. And so I started doing backflips. Um, I threw a couple and just felt really good that day. And then one of my friends got word that her friends had just arrived on the mountain, but they didn't know exactly where we were to meet us. Um, So we left our little playground that we designed to find them. So uh, we kind of, we met up with them, had a few runs and then we returned to that spot in the afternoon afternoon um, with these new folks. And one of them started to modify the top of the jump we had built. So I didn't think too much of it at the time other than, you know, hey, that's cool. Go ahead and improve our kicker. Um, you know, I'd love to be able to get some more air. So 
The next time I, I hit the jump for a backflip, the top of, of it actually crumbled upon my takeoff. So I only got half a rotation on my flip and I landed directly on my head. Um, so I was wearing a helmet, thankfully, but the blow was still just a lot to take. My right arm went completely numb. Um, and then I started to experience just an intense amount of pain in my right shoulder. So I thought my shoulder took most of the hit. And, you know, I started to get feeling back in my arm. Um, and, you know, thankfully, I was able to to get myself off the mountain under my own power. I didn't need to call ski patrol or, or anything like that. Um, so to kind of, uh, I mean, let me, I'm kind of rambling here, Kevin. So no, let you're, me know no you're you... not, you're not rambling at all. So I, I guess kind of what I picture is that like, I picture your head and like up to your shoulders, like in the snow, your feet kind of flailing all over the place with your board still on. So like, I, is that like what happened? Like, how did you get yourself out of the snow? I guess like, with your face in the snow. Well, my, my helmet didn't necessarily stick down in there. I kind of rotated. So I was laying, you know, face up gotcha. um, once I stopped moving. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that that would have been super better. scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you were like stuck in there, like suffocating on the snow or something. Um, yeah, that would have been bad. Yeah. But so why did the friend want to alter the jump? Just cause he thought that you could get more air or. Yeah. She, she just wanted to, I don't know, maybe to make her own, you know, make herself feel more comfortable going off of it. I didn't, I don't really know, um, the extent of, of her decision there. And that's, you know, not something I, I really think about too often. It was just kind of a, a natural, you know, situation that happened. And right. I certainly don't, don't blame her for my, for my accident. Right. You know, looking at it now, it's like, okay, if, if someone is altering this jump that you're about to go off of, like, you know, maybe don't hell, try a backflip first. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, uh, you should go off it and, and land feet first and see right. how it is. So, well, you live and you learn. So, uh, all right. So at this point you have the, the serious shoulder pain that you, you're talking about, but was your neck bothering you too at the same time or? Actually not at that moment. Um, so then the day after, my injury, um, I went in to, to get my shoulder looked at and got x-rays done on it, um, and did all kinds of testing. And, you know, we started doing physical therapy and, and cortisone injections, but nothing was helping. And, you know, a few days later, I started to feel it in my neck a little bit, uh, but it was still more so my shoulder at that point. So I, you know, like I said, nothing was helping for the shoulder. I ended up switching to a new doctor, and that's when they started to look at my neck more seriously. So I had an MRI, and they saw that I had blown my disc at C5, C6. Um, now, with a lot of herniated discs, surgery um, isn't necessary. So, you know, they initially had me going in for spine injections, facet injections. Um, but you know, there was no relief for me whatsoever. So I actually didn't even have surgery until about seven months after my accident. Right. So um, you were, you were like toughing it out as they say. And were you always like that as an athlete? Like were you kind of like, I guess high pain tolerance or just trying to, to tough it out? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was the type of athlete that thought, you know, you stay in the game at all costs. Your team needs you. Right. Um, so I would do whatever, whatever I had to, to, to stay in the game and, and tough it out. Yeah, absolutely. Like um, before you got the diagnosis that it was actually your neck, were you still snowboarding during that time or were you taking I care was, of your yeah. shoulder? Wow. Yeah, I was, I was snowboarding. I was, um, doing all kinds of crazy stunts. So, so did the doctors say like that could have, you could have further like killed yourself, I guess, like by turning a certain way or. Yeah, well, the doctors didn't really know the extent, the full extent of my injury until they actually opened up my neck and, and saw what was going on. So they performed what's called an anterior discectomy and fusion. Um, basically, it's the, the same neck surgery that Peyton Manning had. Um, okay. And he and I actually had it exactly three weeks apart. So it was kind of fun for me to, you know, watch him progress as I was going through the same procedure. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. So, so what they did is they cut open the front of my neck and that's when they discovered that, you know, there was absolutely no other option but surgery because I had also chipped a bit of my vertebrae. So to answer your question, yeah, you know, I, I definitely could have done more damage as I was snowboarding, um, in, in the seven months that, you know, I was trying to rehab this neck. So I remember reading, like in in your story, the Sports Illustrated story that they, the feature that they did on you and that particular surgery, and they talked about like removing your or like moving your vocal cords and this and that. Like that sounds so painful. Number one, but number two, like did it affect like your voice and your ability to speak? Like what was the recovery like after that? Yeah. So what they did is um, they retracted my vocal cords. Um, they took the the disc out that was blown at C5, C6, they kind of cleaned up the area and then inserted a cadaver bone in place of the disc and covered that with a metal plate and four screws. So when I woke up, um, you know, my I was my voice was was gone. I had a sore throat for about four weeks. Wow. And, you know, I woke up with this massive C collar around my neck. It, I kind of felt like one of those dogs with a cone around its right. head, yep. um, you know, which just made sleeping really, really difficult. So, you know, I had to, had to wear that collar for about 12 weeks to give the, the new cadaver bone time to fuse to my spine. Um, so during that time, I couldn't do anything in terms of running, lifting. It was, you know, only after the, the bone had fused that I could actually start physical therapy. Like, how do they know the bone fused? Through x-rays. Okay, they could just, like, tell by certain, I don't know, color variations in your bone or something? Yeah, like, you can actually see it fusing. So I, I went in for x-rays. It was two weeks after the surgery. Again, it's six weeks after, and then at 12 weeks after. So um, they said I was, you know, a, a fast healer and everything came together nicely. All right, that's that's a good good outcome. Um, did you ever talk to Peyton Manning while he was on the Broncos about the surgery because you guys had that connection there? Um, well, I when he first came to Denver, it was um, in March of 2012. And so he and I had already, you know, obviously had the surgery. So, you know, I just went up and introduced myself to him and said, hey, you know, we have uh, a little bit in common here, and you know it was just more of a way for me to um, 
an icebreaker. Make yeah. yeah, an icebreaker and make a little imprint on his brain so he'd remember me uh, in terms of you know media people out there. So right. um, yeah, so you know I introduced I would you know introduced myself to him at that time and then a couple of years down the road we we chatted a little bit more about the the neck surgery and and just kind of what a you know, a difficult recovery it can be. And from the sounds of it, it, you know, I think Peyton had a lot more trouble with his. Um, can you kind of talk about your recovery and what obstacles that you had? Um, yeah, you know, I, I played all kinds of sports and, you know, like I said, did all kinds of crazy stunts while I was growing up and had, you know, nothing more than a sprained ankle or a bloody nose. So I really had no idea what it was like to be on a restricted activity level at all. Um, I don't, and I don't sit still very well. So needless to say, those 12 weeks were just brutal for me. I didn't really know what to do with myself. Um, I didn't know where to put my energy. So, you know, I, I wanted to get going on rehab right away, but it just wasn't possible. Um, I wouldn't say that, you know, I fell into a depression because I knew that I would eventually get back to doing the things that I love. Right. But I definitely had my down days and, you know, it was hard to watch my friends participate in, in the things I couldn't, I had never experienced that before. So. Did you have like any, did you learn any kind of like tools that made you, that made this process easier? Like in terms of managing your thoughts, feelings, and emotions of like wanting to be out on the slopes with your friends, but you couldn't? I think it was just for me, um, constantly reminding myself that it's not going to be this way forever. Right. And, you know, like I said, I knew I would be out there on my snowboard again. So, you know, I, I used a lot of visual imagery and just kind of picturing myself riding down the mountain successfully, um, you know, doing flips again successfully and, and that kind of stuff. All right. Um, so how long did it take you to get back on the slopes again? Um, so I was back on my board about two months after starting physical therapy. Um, and I had, you know, full clearance from my doctor to do so. Um, so really looking back on it, it wasn't, you know, a lot of time that I was out. It just felt that way in the moment. Right. I can see that. Um, so like what, like when you got back out there, did you have any fears of, you know, re-injuring yourself or going over jumps again? Like how did you kind of ease yourself back into that? Um, well I knew, you know, I've been snowboarding since, I was eight years old. So just riding down the mountain, I knew I wasn't going to re-injure my neck that way. Okay. Um, the fear came into play more so when I decided to do a backflip again on my snowboard. Um, so, you know, first of all, I wanted to do one again because I felt like I couldn't let that last backflip be the last one or be the one that almost paralyzed me. And I wanted to prove to myself that, you know, I was back, that I was still a strong snowboarder. Um, so my friends and I happened to be going to Keystone again on the one year anniversary that I actually injured my neck. Wow. Um, we didn't plan it that way at all. It just sort of happened. Yeah, whatever, and, Kim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
trying to make the, the Hollywood the Hollywood story here. I know, I know. It sounds that way. Yeah, it's cool. So, 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 take us through that. Yeah. So, I mean, it was actually on the car ride up that I decided I wanted to use this particular day to flip again, and um, my nerves were were definitely running high. But to to overcome that fear, like I said, I used a lot of mental imagery to picture myself flipping successfully again. Um, and I use this certain strategy kind of in a lot of different situations. Like if I'm having trouble falling asleep at night or if I'm about to do something scary. Um, <clears throat> so what I do is if I have a negative thought, I'll take that thought and imagine that I'm putting it in like this windowless room. So there's a, a chair in that room with shackles, and I take that negative thought, shackle it to a chair, turn off the light in the room, close the door, lock it, throw it off, throw the key off the, the top of a mountain or, you know, into like the Grand Canyon or something. It might sound bizarre, but it works for me. So, yeah, it's really cool. So, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't really typically throw fear away like that because I believe fear is something that deserves to be recognized. Um, and it, it can actually help us in certain situations. Um, you know, I, I like to examine fear, put it under the microscope and, and sort of determine what causes it, whether it's a healthy fear and how much control I have over it. And, you know, how can I and try and figure out a way how I can manipulate that fear into something more productive. Right. And um, that, yeah. I think that's a really cool, I guess, tip for other athletes who might be listening to this episode on kind of ways to overcome their fears or just to get bad thoughts in their head. Like I was, a, I had a hard time throwing you know, a baseball for a while. Cause I was like so afraid of throwing the ball away or something. So that's like another, it's a good idea for that. I know that you have a background in psychology, so is that does that background kind of come into play, you know, in your snowboarding and especially in this situation? Yeah, I I like to think my background in psychology helps me a lot. Um, you know, really a a benefit that came from studying psychology was just being comfortable diving into those big emotions and exploring them from a state of curiosity rather than a state of fear. Um, you know, I allowed myself to, to experience emotions and not push them away throughout my recovery and, and into that day when I went back to do a backflip. So I think, you know, working through some of that anxiety and grief at the time of my accident, although it was painful at the time, helped me in the long run. And, you know, I think my degree in psychology made it easier for me to communicate what I was going through, too. Yeah, that's great. Can you give an example of like uh, the 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 of grief that you were talking about, and like how you um, kind of worked yourself through it? Just because I know that a lot of athletes, whether it's a season-ending injury or career-ending injury, there is that grief period, and that could be like one of the more difficult things to kind of overcome. Right, right. So I don't know if you're familiar with the the stages of grief at all. Um, uh, yeah, you could go through it just in case uh, other people listening. I, I, I've interviewed some other sports psychologists, so we talked about the stages of grief too, but if you can take us through it, that'd be great. Yeah, so, I mean, you kind of start off, you know, something bad happens or something traumatic happens, and um, so 
you sort of start off in this stage of denial, like, you know, this didn't really happen to me and, right. and that sort of stuff. Um, then there's the stage of anger and you're just mad at the world. Why did this have to happen? All that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, you kind of work your way through the stages all the way until you get to the, the acceptance point. Um, and so for me, you know, in the snowboarding injury, I, like I said, I had never lost the ability to do what I wanted with my body just because I, I had never experienced an injury of that magnitude. So, you know, I was in denial for, for the longest time, especially when I found out that I needed to have surgery. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always one who wants to make plans at least, you know, months ahead of time, um, in terms of, you know, what my next grand advent adventure is. Right. And you didn't so, plan for that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I couldn't even, you know, I, I was experiencing loss of something that's very comforting to me. Um, in terms of being able to get out there and, and, and enjoy life. So, um, you know, I guess to give you an example of, of working through that grief, um, I, I told myself, you know, before I had the surgery, okay, once surgery's over and you're kind of laying around, why don't you go ahead and, and list some things that you want to do within the next year? So, you know, I, I wanted to, to go and run the New York City Marathon. Um, I wanted to do a whole bunch of these things. And so, you know, that next year I, I went and, and ran the New York City Marathon and it kind of capped off the whole neck injury and uh, the trauma from that. So setting new goals and stuff and things to, to reach after is a, a good way to kind of get through that grief. Is, yeah. is what you're saying, right? All right, cool. Yep. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. And I know that a lot of athletes, including myself, like I was told that I would never set foot on a football field again by a doctor before I had surgery. So I think by part of what made it difficult for me was because, like, that's all I knew. And, you know, I'm, I didn't have that goal anymore. So, like, I didn't know what my goal was. So I think it's cool that you had the goal that you could still go back to snowboarding, but also you had these other little goals and big goals for a marathon um, to, to kind of get you through that grieving process. So I think that's a good message for, for athletes. So when you landed that first flip after your surgery, what, what kind of feelings did you have? Oh, I mean, it was right up there with, you know, landing my first flip ever. I was just, I was elated. You know, I had some friends up there with me. They kind of ran and, and tackled me as if, you know, I had just didn't, you know, completed a flip at the X games and won a gold medal. Right. Um, so it was just, it was an awesome moment and, and something that really helped put the, the injury behind me. I could kind of move forward with my life. Great. And then speaking of moving forward, I know you competed in a, a competition, a snowboarding competition that was featured in uh, sports illustrated. So can you kind of, Tell us about like your decision to do the competition and how that competition went. Um, yeah, I so like I said, the my snowboarding accident happened in 2011, and I actually didn't even think about competing until 2015. So four years after my accident, and um, you know, I was telling 
one of uh, a, a Dallas-based freelance writer, and she also writes for Purpose to Play. She does a monthly column. Her name is Patty Putnicki. So I was telling her this story and, and about my injury and how I wanted to compete, and she said, Kim, hell, you have, a, you have a great story here. Why don't you let me write this up? So it was actually her story that was put into Sports Illustrated. And um, so she wrote about me entering the Subaru Freeride Series at the time, which was being held in my hometown mountain. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, so I was going to travel back to Utah and compete for the first time. Um, so I ended up taking 12th, I think, out of about 15 riders. So not definitely not first, but uh, not last place either. There you go. Um, and, you know, the format of the sport is something I had never really been exposed to as an athlete growing up. It's just, it's a very subjective sport. I never did anything like gymnastics or fig figure skating or anything where how you look getting from point A to point B is scored. Right. So with big mountain snowboarding, you're judged in three categories as you go down the mountain. Basically, how difficult your line is, how fluid your run is, and your style. So are you doing any tricks? Um, so I'm still kind of trying to get used to that line of thinking as I compete. And, you know, it's a, it's a fun challenge. Did you compete at all before that? No, I didn't. So you started competing afterwards. All right, cool. Um, so how did you like learn how to do all these flips and spins and stuff on the snowboard? Um, I taught myself growing up. I, I had a trampoline in my backyard. So I think my air awareness came from that. Then it was all about strapping a board on my feet and heading out into the, the fields behind my house to try and transfer what I learned onto snow. So you're self-taught, huh? Self-taught, yep. That's impressive. I, I've snowboarded before. I had lessons and stuff like that, but I could imagine that it'd be pretty difficult to teach yourself, so that's impressive. Um, so you met Kevin Pierce at, at one point in time. What did you guys talk about? Kevin Pierce was on our podcast. Um, I'm trying to think of what episode number it was. Uh, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it was like back in December. So I'm just curious like what you guys talked about and um, how would that conversation go? Yeah, Kevin really left an impression on me. Um, his movie, Crash Reel, is still one of my favorite documentaries of all time. Easily. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, I was, I was amazed at how much footage he has. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. And, I mean, Kevin, like you know, he had to give up his sport. And I think he showed that vulnerability is actually a big-time strength. And... So I, I met Kevin at a ski and snowboard trade show that comes through Denver every year. And he was just the most genuine person um, who actually wanted to know my story just as much as I wanted to learn his. And so we talked about, you know, how a split second has the potential to change everything in your life. And so I think that's, you know, that's why it's so important to be grateful for what you have in the here and now yeah I, I completely agree and you guys are both doing something you know really special with your lives uh, you know after these these injuries um 
So what, what I know I read up about you that you were a very big basketball player growing up too. So can you kind of talk about you know uh, your basketball career and how that may have translated into snowboarding and and vice versa? Um, sure. Yeah. I you know I think I got my first basketball hoop when I was about six years old. Like I said, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah um, in the 90s where John Stockton and Carl Malone, those were the guys. I mean, they, the Utah Jazz were our only professional sports team. So the entire state just really got behind the sport of basketball, myself included. Um, so yeah, I played that just all throughout my middle school years, all throughout high school, played a year in college. Um, and, you know, I, I think both being a, a snowboarder and a basketball player, there were a lot of skills uh, that transferred from sport to sport. Um, and on, on one hand, I loved uh, kind of doing my own thing on a snowboard, but just as much as that, I loved being part of a big team that, that gelled really nicely. Um, so I kind of got the best of both worlds from both sports. Right. So and you, you obviously <clears throat> talented enough to play at the next level in college. Um, but what went into your decision to kind of step away from basketball and how hard was that for you? Well, um, so I ended up going to school at a small liberal, liberal arts school in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I think there were a lot of factors that played into to me stepping away from the sport after my freshman year. And, you know, the more I look at it, really 9-11 was, was one that, you know, made a huge impact on my life. Uh, I had just moved away from home for the first time. I was 18 years old and I was thousands of miles from my parents and here's this massive national tragedy that hits. And, you know, two weeks after I leave home, basically. And, you know, Springfield is right in between Boston and New York. And there were a lot of people from my school who lost relatives. And at that point, basketball just kind of seemed secondary to me for the first time in my life. Um, I think 9-11 made me think about my future in depth for the first time and really what I wanted to do with my life. And at the time I wanted to be a psychologist. So I stopped playing and, and focused on my schoolwork, which played, um, which playing a, a college sport is really difficult to do with all the practices and time on the road. So I ended up transferring to SMU in Dallas uh, which I felt would provide me with a better education, and I wanted to be a little bit closer to my family. So, how'd you pick that school? The, the Pony Express, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, my parents had actually moved from Salt Lake to Dallas uh, after I graduated from high school. So I well, now it all I makes just, sense. Yeah, <laughs> I would just live with them and yeah, focus in on my studies. Cool. Um, so, eventually, you you kind of altered your path, obviously, from psychology to writing again. So can you tell us about how you made that transition? Yeah. Um, as I was getting my master's degree from Northern Arizona University, I was seeing clients in grad school. And part of seeing clients is you have to write patient notes. And I just found that I was a lot more talented at actually writing 
patient notes than seeing clients. So, um, you know, I, I wasn't really having the experience I thought I would as I was seeing clients either. So once I was done with school, um, this was in 2007, blogging was kind of new at the time. And so I, I jumped in with fansided.com, which they were only three months old at the time, and started covering the Broncos for, for them. So that, that, that's a really cool transition. And like, did you ever, did you finish grad school or? Yeah, I did. I finished, it was a two year program. So I have my master's. All right, cool. Yeah. I wasn't sure if you were like, yeah, this isn't for me. And then you, you moved on to something else or, or not, but all right. So when you were covering the Broncos, did you ever get a chance to talk to Tim Tebow? I did. Yeah. I was, I was here for Tebow mania as we call yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I've always been a big Tim Tebow fan. Just, I just like how he carries himself and how he plays the game. Um, so what was like the coolest experience you had talking to him? Yeah. Like, you know, what did you I, learn from him? Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of guys in, in the NFL, uh, you know, money and fame is, is so prevalent, but with Tim, you kind of forget that he has that stuff. Uh, he's just very humble and down to earth and you know it's tim was always so great with the media um a lot of nfl guys will kind of shy away from that stuff but tim was you know always available and he was always so authentic and you could tell right away that football was just a job for him that that's not what his life purpose was and right. i think that's you know, a lot of the older guys in the NFL could have learned something from him in that regard. Right, and I think that makes your transition to life after sports a lot easier when you don't view your your sport as your identity, right? Absolutely. Um, what were some of the other, like, great lessons that you learned throughout, you know, covering these NFL guys? Anything that uh, sticks out? You know, I, I can't say I learned a whole lot from them, um, but, you know, I, I can tell you that, I learned um, that there's just so much more to life that, than the NFL. A lot of the people in that world are so sucked up into it, and right. they kind of forget to step away and take a look at the bigger picture. So I think that's kind of what the experience of covering the Broncos for seven years taught me is to take a step back and, and look at things from a, a greater perspective because there's a lot more to life than football. I think that's a perfect transition into how you started uh, Purpose to Play. So can you kind of talk about how you came up with the idea and, and where it all started? Um, yeah, you know, I, I was tired of covering the same stories in the NFL. I would basically just um, replace old names with new names. And, you know, it was basically the same storyline. So I was getting bored. And... I wanted to cover people who were making a greater difference in the world. So I started Purpose to Play at the end of 2013. Um, so we're just over three years old now. And, you know, our, our mission is to tell those positive and inspiring stories that often get lost between the fantasy stats and the scoreboards on other sites. Um, you know, we really aim to tell the, the sports stories that deserve to be told because there are a lot of incredible humans out there doing amazing things that deserve recognition. 
I think there are better stories out there than who LeBron James' celebrity crushes or <laughs> Terrell Owens, you know, having his own gold jacket made after making after not making it to the Hall of Fame. Right. Yeah. So, how much of your injury went into the decision to create this? I think it was more on a subconscious level. Um, you know, I I started to realize more and more after my injury that it takes a lot of, you know, courage and, and guts to put yourself out there again. And so, um, you know, I, like I said, there, there are so many people out there who aren't getting the recognition that they deserve. Um, so I wanted to, to feature those people. Well, I appreciate that because you, you featured Heads and Tails on there not too long ago. So thank you for having me on there. Um, and what are some like common threads that you see throughout the, the different individuals that you guys interview? Um, yeah. So first of all, let me, you know, we've done stories on people like the first guy with cerebral palsy to summit Mount Kilimanjaro or the first woman to mountain bike across Afghanistan. Or we even did a story on an eight-year-old who um, is running marathons through treatment for brain cancer. So those wow. are the, the kinds of stories that we're doing. And I think a lot of them <clears throat> have sort of learned how to harness their adversity and use it as a catapult. Um, you know, most people I've interviewed have said that their injury or illness or the tragedy that they've experienced is one of the greatest things that's happened to them in their life. There's this, you know, overwhelming feeling of satisfaction and gratitude that they've made it through their difficult period and they're better humans because of it on the other side. So, um, not everyone we cover is the greatest athlete, but they've learned how to give their best energy and effort available in the moment. Um, so, you know, they've learned that yes, life can deliver vicious blows, but it also gives, or it also delivers some, some great opportunities too. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's, a that's, that's definitely how I feel with my injury. It took me a while to kind of figure that out, but I think that's, it's definitely a, a healing aspect to trying to do, do good by your, your tragedy. Um, so what, like, what advice do you have for athletes like how can an athlete take that adversity and how do you turn that into something, you know, great and something special that makes you feel good about yourself? I think one of the, the main keys is learning how to manage your fear. Um, fear, I think fear plays such a huge role in everything we do or, or don't do. Um, you know, we often get so consumed by a fear of failure that we for, forget to appreciate the effort we put into our attempt. We don't appreciate the the rehab or the training or the early al alarm clocks um, as much as we should because our culture is always so focused on results. So, you know, a lot of times we won't try something new because we think that the very thing we need to do in order to get better is to appear better, if that makes sense. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, like, if you can maybe use your story as an example, like how did you kind of overcome that fear? I guess, I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to like put it in first, like how can someone listening to this 
you know, kind of translate that into their own their own story. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, first of all, not comparing yourself to anyone else um, is very important. Uh, it's so easy, especially nowadays with social media and all the updates we're getting on, on people's lives. Definitely. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, just because you hear of another athlete coming back from, let's say, an ACL tear in nine months, that doesn't put you on the same timetable. Um, you know, so just not comparing yourself to others and allowing yourself to to sort of experience the wave of emotions that comes over you as you work through the fear uh, the fear and, and the process of, of trying to come back to your sport. All right. That's great. I like that. Um, so what are like some of the most memorable stories you've covered or lessons that you've learned since uh, starting Purpose to Play? Um, yeah, whenever someone asks me about a, a memorable story, it's always like, you know. Which, which one? Which, yeah, there's like... Yeah, it's like they're all memorable. Try yeah. try and pick your your favorite child. <laughs> yeah, so, no, I, I feel the same way. I think you asked me that question too, and I was like, uh, well, uh, yeah, yeah. They're, <laughs> yeah, they're I all just special wanted to, to you in their own way. Yeah, just wanted to put you on the spot there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I I think I did one. Um, I actually published it this week, and or rather last week. Um, there was this woman who. She grew up in a religious cult in uh, in Europe, in Africa. She basically, she was abandoned by her parents at three years old, and she was raised by the, the leaders of this cult, and she lived in over 30 countries. Um, and she finally found her way out. She made an escape when she was 22 years old, and she went and learned how to ride a bike for the first time. And six months later, she became the first woman to cycle around the world and the fastest woman to do so as well. So she cycled 18,000 miles all around the world. And she's continuing to go on these epic bike, ride, bike rides and she's raising money to help get other kids out of um, situations like, like hers where they're, they're kind of stuck in a religious cult. That's so amazing. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's one story that's, that definitely stands out. Where do you like, where do you find these people? Um, geez, the internet is a great place sometimes. So <laughs> local like news, local okay. news. Um, sometimes I'll get leads from friends or family. Um, so it really varies. Yeah. I'm kind of in the same boat, I guess. It comes from everywhere, but. That's an incredible story, and and if you like the Heads and Tails podcast, then you're definitely gonna like Purpose to Play. So, um, definitely we'll go. We'll, we'll plug the the website and everything at the end. Um, but you've also uh, written a children's book about kind of about your own story. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, uh, the book is called Solar the Polar. It's due out in spring of next year. And okay, it's cool. about a, a snowboarding polar bear and a skier girl who is missing her legs below the knees. So it's kind of this fun winter romp that gives a, a gentle nod to Arctic warming, backcountry safety, and enjoying life with a disability. Um, so it, it kind of taps into a whole bunch of, of different things. But I wanted to have a, a disabled skier in there. Uh, because 
I believe that the more we expose kids to people who are different from them, um, the more likely they're going to be to include those people in their lives. Yeah, I really like that message too. And once the book is published, I'll I'll help promote that as well. I really like the idea of that. Um, so, like, how did you keep the book from being like too scary? I guess for kids, like, I don't know how the girl, the skier girl, got um, or lost her legs, but yeah, we. Had... No, yeah, go for I it. actually made it. So um, there's no detail about how the skier girl lost her legs. It's just this polar bear sees her on the mountain and she's this incredible skier on a, a sit ski. Okay. And so there's, there's really no mention of, of how she lost her legs, but there's a lot of attention that's paid to the fact that she's a very talented skier, despite the fact she has no legs. All right. That, that's, that's great. So the reason why I ask that is because I know I get this question a lot, you know, with people saying, you know, should you let your kid play football? But, you know, snowboarding and skiing, there's a lot of danger in that as well. So I'm sure you get similar questions, especially after the injury that you suffered from. So what do you tell parents who are afraid of letting their kids, you know, snowboard or play sports because they don't want them to get hurt? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm not a parent, so I can only speak from one side here, but I think allowing your kids the chance to experience all that sports have to offer, you know, the glory and the so-called tragedy is key and kids need to learn how to win graciously, how to lose gracefully, how to work within a team and perform in conditions that might be less than ideal. Um, that's kind of the great thing about sports. It's practice for life, right? So, you know, life isn't pretty all the time, but we still have to figure out a way to give our best. And of course, with sports comes a risk for injury, but those injuries also come with lessons for how to deal with adversity. Um, obviously, you you don't want your child to get hurt, but some good can come of it. So right. if if parents are trying to constantly protect or, or bubble wrap their kids, how are those kids going to fare later on in life when mom and dad aren't there to be the, the knight in shining armor? So um, I will say, though, you know, if I had a son, I don't think I would let him play football unless he wanted to be a kicker. Um, so I, I get the, the severity of head injuries to a developing brain. Um, so I do think, you know, certain limitations have to be imposed if, if you're a parent. Yeah. And I, I, it's hard for me to, you know, with the whole football thing too, just because the same lessons that you're talking about are the same lessons that I got from playing football. And I really do believe that if I just was honest about how I felt, then I ever, I would have been fine, you know? So, but that's a whole nother podcast episode. Um, (laughs) so what are your future plans for a purpose to play? Um, so, you know, obviously we're going to continue putting out great written features on, uh, on athletes from all sports, all different levels. Uh, we're going to be producing more video content as well. Um, but kind of the, the big news, the, the big direction we're going is we're becoming an affiliate site to a major player in sports media. 
Um, I don't want to spill the beans right okay. yeah, now, cool. but it'll definitely help us grow our, our readership base. Um, so that's pretty cool. And then in the uh, fall of this year, I'm actually going to be running another sports journalism program for teens. Um, I did this. I put on a couple of courses in 2015. And uh, so we have athletes come in and allow teenagers to interview them. Then they write their stories and we publish them on purpose to play. So yeah, this coming fall, we partnered with um, TJ Ward from the Broncos again. And so we're going to be doing it in Denver. That's a really cool program, paying it forward and teaching young kids how to, how to write. That's great. Um, all right. So just as we finish, if you want to plug your, your social media and websites or and any, any last, uh, any, any last statements? Um, yeah, you can follow us. Well, purpose to play.com. Um, that's the actual website and it's purpose, the number two and play. And then we're also on Twitter at purpose to play. Uh, we're on Facebook as well. Um, and then if you feel like giving my personal Twitter account a follow, it's at KimCon14. And I'll put that all up in the show notes for everyone to, to make it easy for, for you guys. Um, and Kim, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story, taking the time to share my story on your, on your website. And I love what you guys are doing at Purpose to Play, and I'm excited for what's to come. Yeah, likewise, Kevin. And I'm sure we'll be collaborating more in the future. I hope so. 